If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, I pray that in a moment such as this, when your people are gathered together, that each of us would contemplate the full measure of your love, of how you sent your son, your only son, to atone for our individual sin. And Lord, as we survey in our minds all of the sins that we have committed, I pray, Lord, that it would create in us a sense of awe at the magnitude of what was covered on our behalf. But not only that, Lord, I pray as your people are gathered together, we would be in even more awe of recognizing that the blood of your precious Son covered all of us. Each of us gathered together corporately, Lord, have received the blessing of Jesus' sacrifice. And by that, Lord, it would make us realize that your great love, your great mercy overcomes our backgrounds, our economic situations, our ethnicities, our own individual eccentricities, and your blood of your Son is sufficient to cover it all. May we look to one another in this room, even with a newfound love and admiration that our brothers and sisters are too saved by the precious blood of Jesus. And with that, Lord, we pray you would teach us through this passage about this sacred right that you have given us to build up our faith. We pray, Lord, that we would listen to your spirit now. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. I love how we are enabled to see God's providence. It just so happens that the verses we have before us concentrate on the Lord's Supper. And of course, we're scheduled to celebrate communion today, though we're going to do so at the end of the sermon. It's perfect in his providence. It's almost like we should name our church after that or something. It's just really cool. Last week, we began the final narrative of Matthew's gospel. And beginning with this morning's verses, Matthew will describe the three days that mark the single most important event in all of human history, the passion and resurrection of Jesus. It begins on the Thursday night of Holy Week, and we're only going to be able to deal with a portion of that evening, but what Jesus does with his disciples at this meal has lasting impact for the present-day Christian. The pivotal moment in our verses is the Lord's Supper. It will inaugurate a new feast for a new covenant. It's one of two ordinances that we continue to celebrate within the church today, the other being baptism. In reform circles, we like to speak of how our worship services should be biblically based. A catchphrase that is often used is preach the Bible, hear the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, and see the Bible. When we use that last clause, see the Bible, we are making reference to the Lord's Supper and to baptism. When we baptize someone, we are providing visual public testimony of a life that was transformed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The right displays before others our union with Christ and what he did on our behalf. That picture is portrayed when we immerse an individual into the water and then they are raised and washed anew. Similarly, the supper is also an act that displays the gospel. 
And this morning, we're going to focus in on that event. And to grasp its significance, we need to understand a little bit about the Passover feast that preceded it. And then we're going to see how Christ provides us something different with the institution of this new supper. And this will be followed by a particular event that demonstrates why we need the supper after the cross. So that's going to form the basis of our outline this morning. The Passover, the Lord's Supper, and the need for it. The Passover, the Lord's Supper, and the need for it. Now, the Old Testament law commanded the Jewish people to celebrate three feasts. The Feast of Weeks, which is celebrated at Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the most important, the Passover, which inaugurates the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was the most important of these and is still celebrated by the Jews today because it's closely related to their national identity. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. This is found on page 100, wrong, page 53 of your pew Bible. Now, as our concern this morning is for what Matthew describes in his gospel, we're only going to be able to do a high-level overview of the first Passover. There are many nuanced details within this passage, but we need to stay at a basic understanding so we can comprehend its importance prior to the Lord's Supper. So here's the context. Yahweh, the God of the universe, has a people that he has chosen for himself to be a display of his glory upon the earth. They are the blood descendants of Abraham. And under Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, the Lord's people are able to escape a famine occurring in the Promised Land and to move to Egypt. And over a period of 400 years, the Jews become enslaved to the Egyptians. And the book of Exodus describes the Lord's deliverance of his people from captivity through his prophet or servant Moses. Now, at this point in the story, Moses has approached the Pharaoh over Egypt, and he's demanded the release of the Hebrew people and allow them to return to their homeland. Pharaoh stubbornly refuses, and Yahweh sends a series of nine plagues that fall upon the Egyptians. They are appalling and disgusting. Things like the Nile being turned into blood, being covered in in frogs and gnats and flies, boils on their skin, and locusts devouring their crops. And yet Pharaoh still stubbornly refuses to release the Jews. So the Lord has one last horrifying plague that he will send to the Egyptians, the worst of them all. He will send his angel of death who will kill the firstborn of every living creature in Egypt, including the household of Pharaoh. Now, after hearing this, your first instinct might be, well, why would a good God do such a thing? Well, let me remind you, first and foremost, the Lord prizes his people. And there was ample warning given to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians who had subjugated his people, causing their misery for centuries. This is judgment upon the Egyptians for the sufferings they inflicted upon the Jews. And it's also a display of God's wrath that should warn us that we should always take him at his word. And there's something unique about this particular curse. For for this special plague, the Jews were not exempt from it. They were required to obey certain commands by God as a demonstration of their faith in Yahweh that he would deliver them from their captivity and that he would save their children from the angel of death. Each Hebrew household was required to sacrifice a lamb without blemish or defect. 
and the blood of that lamb was to be placed on the frame of the door of their homes. And when the angel of death came upon Egypt, he would pass over the households that had the blood markings, and no one would die within that house. The sacrifice of the lamb was given in exchange for the life of the firstborn. If any Jewish families did not obey, they too would be under the judgment of the angel of death. But that is not all. The Jews were to eat all of the lamb to nourish them because they were going to be on the run the very next day. They had to be packed up and ready to go. They even ate and slept in their clothes, ready to move out as soon as Pharaoh relents. And when we read the narrative in Exodus 12, what Moses predicted occurred. We can see this. Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go out, or up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone, and bless me also. The Lord spared his people who obeyed by faith to sacrifice a lamb. But the rest of Egypt now mourned the consequences of their sin. The Jews needed to move quickly because the Lord knew that Pharaoh would pridefully seek revenge and hunt them down. Now, I'm going to have to end this part of the story here. But if you feel like I left you on a cliffhanger, feel free to read the rest of the story a little bit later. It's a good one. It's a really good one. But spoiler alert, God delivers his people from slavery and he establishes them back in their homeland. He delivers on his promise. But before we turn back to Matthew again, note the instruction here in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And Moses will go on to describe the feast of unleavened bread that accompanies it, which has to be celebrated immediately after the Passover. The unleavened bread represented the haste that the Israelites had to flee. They departed Egypt so quickly that bread leaven didn't have time to rise. But note that this feast, Passover and unleavened bread, was not only commanded to be celebrated before the angel of death came, but also before the Mosaic law was presented to the Hebrews at Sinai. Once the law is given, we'll see that the sacrifices were to be made at the tabernacle because it preceded the Ten Commandments here and the temple sacrifices. The Passover was the highest regarded holiday as it memorialized national Israel being delivered from captivity. Every Jew would desire to obey the command to celebrate it in order to identify themselves with Yahweh's people. Now, if you will, please turn back to Matthew chapter 26. Once again, this is page 832 of your pew Bible. As we've already seen throughout this gospel, Jesus committed no sin, neither in acts of commission or acts of omission. He obeyed the Old Testament law perfectly, and as such, he would celebrate the Passover with his followers just as the law commanded. However, it would be the last time it would need to be celebrated. Matthew 26, verse 17. 
Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, it's at this time, while all the elements were being presented, the lamb, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, Jesus makes a startling announcement. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. John tells us in chapter 13 of his gospel that he was sitting close to Jesus and was able to hear this final intimate interchange between Jesus and Judas that we have here in verse 25. This pronouncement is significant for three reasons. First of all, here was Judas's opportunity to repent. Jesus was aware of his betrayal. And though he tried to mask his deceit and play along with the other disciples asking, is it I, Rabbi? Jesus confirms that he knows Judas will betray him, even lovingly warning him here in verse 24 of the consequences. This would have been the time for Judas to confess and repent, but he doesn't. He carries out his own evil devices. Number two, Jesus knew all that was occurring. In verse 2 of this chapter, he told his disciples what would happen on this night. He would be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus could have run and avoided the suffering at this point, but his course was set to save his people from their sins. Jesus was willing to be the sacrificial lamb on our behalf. And number three, Jesus fulfilled his legal obligation as the rabbi. As the head of the household and serving the Passover feast to his disciples, even to Judas, Jesus met the standards of the law and fulfilled it perfectly. The Passover meal is somewhat extensive. Remember, the participants had to consume the entire lamb that night, and that would take a while. And so as they were chewing the meat of the lamb, Jesus introduces something new. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. These are not the normal words of the Passover ritual. As the Son of God and as the one who is about to become the sacrificial lamb, he has every right to now reinterpret this event and place new meaning upon the elements. And so he does. It's just four verses, but they have such a depth of theology here. He takes the unleavened bread, and he calls it his body. He commands his disciples to eat it. And it's significant that he is the one that consecrates it through prayer and breaks the bread and distributes it to his disciples. Jesus, as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, is sharing his bodily sacrifice with his disciples. 
And likewise, he picks up a cup, consecrates it, and pronounces that the contents is his blood. And it's significant as well to note his words. All who were present were to drink from it. Each person was instructed to participate corporately. It was his blood that would seal and ratify a new covenant which would provide forgiveness of trespasses against God. Note again, he says his blood is poured out for many, not all of mankind, but just many. Just like the old Passover, it is only for the ones who demonstrate their faith in what Jesus does over the next two days in his death and resurrection. It is only those that will receive this forgiveness of sin. He next states in verse 29 that he will not celebrate this rite with them again until they all feast together in the promised kingdom. His followers will celebrate the supper repeatedly, as 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 states, until the Lord comes. But the next time Jesus will lead it will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb where all the citizens of the kingdom will partake with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, one may ask, why does Matthew not explicitly say this new supper was to be celebrated like this continuously until the Lord returns? After all, Luke says, do this in remembrance of me, as does Paul in 1 Corinthians. Most likely, it was because Matthew's readers were already celebrating it regularly. Our author is describing the relevance of the act, which explains why it should be done and what it represents. So I'd like us to pause for a moment and just think through the significance of the supper. And there are seven points that I'd like to make about it. Seven points here. You can follow along on your outline. First, Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant with God's people, a new way that God's people will be reconciled to him. It was foretold and will be the final fulfillment of what the previous sacrifices foreshadowed. Unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that brings forgiveness of sin. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. When Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he is announcing that he is now the once and for all sacrifice. No more sacrifices will be needed. This is a new covenant based upon his death. Second, the supper is only for those in this new covenant who believe that Jesus died in their place. And all who do not believe it should not participate in it. 
And I would say the public proclamation of baptism should be proceeded uh, in the participation in the supper as a means that you should do, that, or that you do believe that Christ is your once and for all sacrifice. No one else should participate in communion. But believers should make every effort to do so. Third, the supper is to be done corporately by all who have done the second item those who have believed that Jesus died in their place and have been baptized as a result. The corporate nature of communion signifies our new identity and what Christ has done for us. Just as the Jews identified themselves as a people by the Passover, the supper identifies those who belong in the church. When you participate in the supper, you are declaring that you are a member of the body of Christ. Fourth, the Lord's Supper is a public display of the gospel. It is a public display of the gospel. The high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies behind closed curtains in which only he was allowed to approach God and offer the sacrifice of blood. Now that curtain is torn away and all can see the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. Now because Jesus did it once and for all, everyone who believes in him has full admittance to God through the righteousness of Christ, not just the high priest. We all can approach the God of the universe. Our participation in the supper together testifies to our faith in the gospel alone that saves. Fifth, unlike the temple, which is stationary in Jerusalem, the supper is portable. It can be celebrated anytime, anywhere as a demonstration of our faith in what Christ has done. The supper goes where God's new people go. It is not confined to a geographical boundary. It can be celebrated anywhere there is common bread and fruit of the vine. And by the way, I'm often asked if we must use fermented wine in communion. While I'm convinced that was the practice at Passover, I'm not convinced that the contents of the cup for the Christian is as important as much as what it represents. Those who slavishly adhere to using wine as though it must be a law may find themselves just as guilty as our Roman Catholic friends who must insist that one believe that the wine literally turns into the blood of Jesus. So no, I don't think it has to be fermented wine. But one must have faith in what it represents in Christ. But unlike the temple sacrifices, the act of Jesus being offered on our behalf can be displayed anywhere. Six, if Judas participated, it shows that one is capable of participating at the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner without discerning the body and eating and drinking judgment upon his or herself. Paul describes this in the latter part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He speaks of those who participated in the supper with neither regard for what it represented in Christ nor for their fellow brothers and sisters. It would be the same as hearing the gospel of Jesus, acknowledging that you understand it, and then fully rejecting it. Therefore, you would be bringing judgment upon yourself. And lastly, the supper is also promise. It is promised in two ways. First, as Jesus just declared in verse 29, we will at some point in the future celebrate the supper with him again in the new heaven and the new earth. 
When we partake in communion, we are reminded that the suffering in this world is only temporary. Jesus has promised a better one and that he will return. And second, it reminds the believer of the promise that it is the sacrifice of Jesus that secures our righteousness. Nothing else does. No acts of obedience on our part. We can rest knowing that Jesus has purchased our place. Nothing more is needed. Only belief in what Christ has done. And it's on this last point that we're given an illustration of why we need this regular occurrence of celebrating the Lord's Supper. In verse 30, the meal has concluded. All present sing a hymn, and as was their custom throughout Holy Week, they return to the Mount of Olives for the night. And it's at this time Jesus predicts Zechariah 13:7 will occur. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away of me, fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now take note, Jesus says all of them will fall away. And he states why. Because of him. Each to their shame will desert Jesus when he is arrested, which happens in verse 56. But even this is under the Lord's sovereign control as it is a fulfillment of prophecy. But of course, as he's shown in the past, our friend Peter thinks that he can thwart the will of God. Pridefully and impetuously, he responds to Jesus' prediction here in verse 33. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now to be sure, all of them pledged their allegiance to Jesus, and each of them failed. But Peter particularly is singled out here that he will not only do it once by deserting Jesus, but in addition, three times he will verbally deny his Lord in a single night. Surely not. I mean, Peter is the best of the bunch, right? Sure, he could be a little muddle-headed and belligerent at times, but no one would doubt Peter's allegiance to the Lord. After all, he demonstrated his humility when he dropped to his knees, when Jesus first called him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, stating he was unworthy to be his follower, yet Jesus called him anyway. Peter was the first one to, to jump out of the boat and attempt to walk on the water. In fact, he was the only one. Peter is the first to declare that Jesus is the Christ. And we even see his overprotection of Jesus in the verses that followed that profession when he tried to rebuke Jesus, telling him not to talk about his upcoming crucifixion. And just a few verses later in this chapter, according to, to John, it will be Peter that draws his sword against the mob that comes to arrest Jesus. He at least tries to stand up to the temple guard. Surely not Peter. If anyone has the discipline and bravery to abide with Jesus, it is Peter. And yet we're told what occurs when the moment comes as Jesus is on trial before the chief priest. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. 
But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Even Peter, the most faithful of the disciples, will need the Lord's Supper to sustain him by remembering what secures his salvation. Most likely the shame of what he did, denying Jesus at the accusation of a servant girl, would come to mind often. Like us, he probably could replay the scene over and over. Luke reveals that in that moment of his denial, Peter saw across that courtyard the loving eyes of the Lord gazing at him as he failed at his promise to never deny him. I I can only imagine that the shame of that moment probably just haunted him over and over again in his mind. But Peter was not without recourse when those thoughts returned. Jesus had given him the supper to feed him spiritually when his thoughts condemned him. When he held the bread alongside of his brothers and sisters, he would be reminded it is only the perfect obedience of Jesus that makes Peter acceptable before God. And then as he held up the cup together, he also would be assured that it is the blood of Jesus alone that secured his forgiveness and his redemption. Peter's confidence in Christ would become secure. It would be faith-building. In fact, he'd later write, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And note here how Peter is looking forward to a future feast. Raise Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And every time Peter and his companions celebrated the supper, it would cause him to endure this world. His sin, nor the sin that brings persecution, none of that wins. None of that wins over it. He would know, Christ has secured my place, and he's coming back to take me with him. Christ has secured my place, and he's coming back to take me with him. When you take of the supper this morning, Christ has secured your place, and he's coming back to take you with him. Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad for the supper? Don't you long to gather with your fellow redeemed sinners and joyfully partake so that we might proclaim the Lord's death on our behalf until he comes? But for my friends who are here who have not set their affections on the Lord Jesus, I need to make sure that you understand the ritual of the Lord's Supper does nothing to save us. It does not merit any favor before God. In fact, if we view it in that way, it's an abomination before the Lord because it would diminish the sacrifice of Jesus. The importance of the supper is in what it represents. Christ 
crucified on our behalf. He is the worthy, acceptable sacrifice before the Father. He who received the wrath that we deserve, the righteous one for the unrighteous, resurrected in power and glory. Our faith is in him, not in bread and juice. And as long as it is day, he invites you to come to him. Come to him who alone can forgive sin. Come to him who alone can make your soul clean. Come not just to celebrate at this table, but to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, what a precious gift. Thank you, Jesus, for providing us with something tangible that would always point us back to you. That we realize that as we hold the elements in our hands, this should be a faith-building exercise. It should spiritually nourish us to remind us over and over again it's not what we have done or what we have not done it is about what you have done therefore lord we pray that when we partake of this beautiful supper that you would remind us in this moment of the great depth of love that was granted us through the sacrifice of jesus we pray, Lord, that as we gather together as a people, that we would do so under your banner to proclaim that we are your people until Christ returns again. And we pray, Holy Spirit, use this to, to continue to build up our faith to endure in this world, teaching us through your word that the Son will come back to reclaim his bride once again. So, Lord, let us turn our gaze now towards your son, Jesus, so that we might exalt him and declare he is worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who is slain. We pray this in the finished work of Jesus only. Amen.